Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shobhana Xavier. In each new episode, we choose a new book in the field of Islamic studies and chat with its author. In our new book, Pilgrimage in Islam, Traditional and Modern Practices, Sophia Rose Arjuna, an assistant professor of religion in Kentucky University, explores the diverse array of pilgrimage practices in the Muslim world. Pilgrimage in Islam is often synonymous with the Hajj, or pilgrimage to Mecca. But Arjuna's study deconstructs this normatively held assumption by taking her readers on a journey across various sacred spaces throughout the contemporary global context. Her itineraries in this book beautifully illuminates the ways in which mobility around the sacred varies, challenging any easy categorization scholars and students may apply in the study of Islamic pilgrimages and sacred spaces. Her book moves us beyond sectarian binaries, notions of mystical or Sufi rituals, and gendered norms to help us deconstruct labels that have been conventionally used by religious studies scholars. Arjuna's text is a valuable resource for undergraduate students, but also for graduate students, as it provides provocative case studies and theorizations on pilgrimages, spatiality, and ritual performances in religious studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sophia Rose Arjuna. It is a pleasure to have with us today the author of Pilgrimage in Islam, Traditional and Modern Practices, Sophia Rose Arjuna. Sophia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so as it is tradition in our uh, podcast for New Books in Islamic Studies, we often ask the authors about their intellectual journeys and what led them to this particular moment and the book that we are talking about. So I wonder if you could give us a bit of a biographical sketch or, into, or of your intellectual trajectory and this moment now. Sure, sure. Well, I did my um, did my PhD at University of Denver, um, and in that program, we do a lot of kind of critical work looking at the category of religion um, and how religion is constructed and how different um, kind of religious communities are constructed. And so, it's a pretty um, kind of critical approach to the study of religion. Um, and so, in my first book. Um, which came out in 2015. Um, it's this book called Muslims and the Western Imagination, published by Oxford. I was really interested in looking at how the Muslim man was constructed in the Western imagination. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that often came up um, when I was kind of thinking about teaching about Islam, and then I, I had a visiting position for five years before my current position, mm-hmm. um, was was you know, this whole kind of five pillars approach to Islam and, and, um, the tendency among, among some scholars to kind of oversimplify, um, Muslim traditions. And, um, the way this particular book came about was through a series of conversations I had with a variety of people in my field, colleagues in my field about how, you know, how do we teach pilgrimage in Islam? Um, because if we look at, you know, the textbooks, and those kinds of introductions to usually just talk about Hajj. Um, so I was really interested in this idea of, you know, why, 
why are these these presentations, um, you know, in the academy and how do we kind of move away from them? And one of the things that was just said to me was, well, why don't you write a, you know, there's not really a book on pilgrimage in Islam that's really looking at all these pilgrimage practices. So maybe you should write it. And so that's really kind of how the, um, you know, how the project started. And one of the things I really felt strongly about when I, when I started on it, was to not privilege any tradition. Um, and so I really worked hard to be as inclusive as I could. I mean, obviously I couldn't include every single pilgrimage in the world, every religious community, but I tried to kind of, um, you know, push the conversation a little bit to say, you know, I mean, if, if these folks consider themselves Muslim and they're having, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, performing a pilgrimage that let's try and, you know, talk about that. Um, and so that's really how the project came to be. Okay. Um, and I think this is one of the things I find very productive about the book is, you know, you talk about in your afterward of the idea of inclusion of difference, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I wonder if you could kind of share the process in which how you kind of constructed the book and especially your methodological approaches. Did you end up traveling to some of these spaces? Um, how did you encounter um, some of these spaces um, and how you chose to include the ones that you did? Right, right. That's that's a great question. I mean, there were a couple of things that happened. I mean, one of the things was that I had traveled to a number of Muslim majority um, countries. And so I had, you know, engaged in some of these practices and observed some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the other things that um, took place is that I recently, in recent years, spent time in Indonesia. And I was really interested in this, this kind of, uh, this kind of um, uh, phenomenon of there'll be a you know, individual who is perhaps another tradition um, passes away, perhaps like a Hindu, for example, this happens quite a bit in Indonesia. And then they're kind of renamed as a Muslim saint. And then they be, you know, basically become part of a pilgrimage tradition. And so one of the things that I was interested in looking at is, you know, these kinds of, um, these kinds of identity politics that are, that are really important now. So, you know, people, you know, have different ways of identifying. And I was particularly interested in this, this idea of, you know, who is a Sufi, right. Um, which is a, which is an interesting question. And I had this whole chapter on it. And what, one of the kinds of things I wanted to look at was the construction of this category, because the, um, idea of mysticism is really an invention of British Orientalists, right? So, right. you know, how does that kind of impact the way we think about, um, you know, these people who we call Sufis? And so what, what I ended up doing there was saying, you know, I guess I have to go along with this category, but I don't really, I really don't buy it. It's <laughs> that right, great of a right. category, um, but I'm going to go along with it kind of for the sake of, you know, sake of organizing this material. So one of the things that I tried to do, um, while I was thinking about this book was to constantly have this kind of lesson I learned in grad school in my mind, which is this perspective of, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a white scholar, right. Um, you know, studying this. And I think I need, need to be really conscious of that, of that colonial history in particular, because I'm a white scholar. Um, and so I really was careful not to kind of play this game of, um, you know, privileging one, sect of Islam or one kind of articulation of Islam over another, but also kind of trying to do this geographically so that I didn't end up just talking about, um, for example, just talking about um, different pilgrimage traditions in Arab majority states or in South Asia, right? So I really tried to be as inclusive as I could so that those other voices could kind of 
enter the conversation. And then the other thing I did was I kind of looked outside of um, just strictly the field of religious studies. So I looked at a lot of kind of, you know, anthropology studies and historical studies um, so that I had kind of as many voices in the conversation as possible. Right. And I think that's one of the things that really stands out in the book is that you do try to decentralize, right? There is a sense that there's a moving away from pilgrimage, which we often think as purely of the Hajj, right? Of going to Mecca. And I think you spend some time really kind of decentralizing that idea that it has to, doesn't have to be this in Islam, that there's these other ones, right? Right. Right. And I, you know, I was also interested in this kind of idea of, you know, so how did kind of Mecca get to this point, right? So that early chapter that I have is really you know, not just about Mecca, but also about Mecca in a conversation with Jerusalem and Medina. So, you know, how did all of these kind of, um, you know, exist initially as a network of, of pilgrimages, you know, that people really, you know, would go do try to do as many these places as possible. Right. And, um, and, you know, how did that kind of shift over, you know, over the centuries? So I tried to do a little bit of that, work of let's kind of give an anthropology of right anthropology of these cities you know as much as I could in the chapter so we can kind of see what the early history looks like right right and I think the other thing you've raised also in terms of Sufism I think as someone who's also studying Sufism is really fascinated by kind of the Sufi sites you're engaging with and really kind of the challenge of defining an authentic Sufi Um, I found that that was a narrative that came came up more. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you dealt with that um, in the book and the spaces you were encountering, particularly when it came to a point of cross-pollination. You talk very nicely about, you know, um, um, kind of practices of Hindus participating in these shrines um, and people who won't necessarily identify as Sufi, but are Muslim and identifying, practicing um, and uh, taking pilgrimages to certain shrines, right? So I think the naming and labeling was something that was very kind of um, uh, something that you challenged a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's hard, right? Because we, um, you know, we have this, I mean, we we definitely have, you know, kind of, um, you know, religious practices or traditions in Islam, such as, um, you know, Sufi schools of thought, and we have this kind of emphasis on lineages, if you're in a Sufi order, but then you also have all these folks, you know, that do Sufi stuff, right? <laughs> they don't necessarily say, I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, like I'm a Sufi. Like um, I knew this uh, older woman in um, Indonesia who was a, rel- a relative of mine. And, um, and she, you know, did all these things that scholars often say are Sufi things. And she would never, you know, identify that way, right? And she certainly didn't have, she was an Ustada, right? She was a female religious uh, teacher, um, but she would never say, oh, like I'm following my master or whatever, you know, but she had all these things that she did like zikr or dicker, right? And right. and all these extra prayers and all these extra pilgrimages. So I think one of the things that kind of came up for me is, you know, how do we kind of describe these religious activities? Um, and it's, I think it's a complicated question because um, I think the tendency, um, you know, modernity is to kind of try to categorize everything, right? And that's one of maybe the legacies of the Reformation and the scientific, you know, revolution, (laughs) like we want to put everything in category. But some of these categories are, you know, are 
things that are, you know, inventions. Um, and some of them don't necessarily correspond to what the lived religion is on the ground. And so one of the things I wanted to try to do is to say, you know, we have this vocabulary, like as somebody that's in the academy, I have to engage with it, but I, I think we need to be really critical about it. Yeah. Um, and certainly you do have a lot of, a lot of places where, um, you, you know, you'll have some kind of shrine activity, right. Or some kind of pilgrimage and there'll just be this great variety of people that's, that's there. And you might not even have anybody there that even thinks of themselves, you know, as a Sufi, you might have people that may not even consider themselves Muslims, but they're still participating, you know, in this kind of activity. And you have that, you know, I think a lot in parts of Southeast Asia and South Asia, perhaps more than other places, but it's definitely something I think as scholars, we need to be attentive to. Um, and I do think that, you know, because the construction of Islam is embed, you know, has been very much embedded in Orientalism. I think in our, um, guilds, um, we have to be particularly careful about it. Right. Because, you know, maybe like if you're a scholar of, um, you know, Schleiermacher, maybe you don't have to be like as careful about it. Right. But I think because of the subject matter that we study, we do need to interrogate these categories carefully. Right. And I think that's what's so fascinating about as you kind of position going from a text to a context, right, going from like something that is written to the lived experience, right, because you really are highlighting kind of the messiness of it all, not only between kind of Sufi practices, but also I think you spend quite a bit of time talking about kind of secretarian lines and how they're often kind of crossed. Because um, even in our field, we tend to kind of say, you know, this is very um, Shia and this is very Sunni. Um, but in your text, um, you do kind of spend some time talking about um, how those, um, again, cross-pollination, how those I binaries are, are often quite easily transcend- transcended. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I wish I'd had a little bit more time to give some more examples, but I give an example or two where you'd have somebody or you have a community or you have a site where you have, you know, a variety of um, folks going to the site, and it's not necessarily the people you'd expect, right? Um, and historically, we've had we've had people that I think, you know, I mean, so so maybe they would go to you know these particular graves that were relatives of the prophet, and then they would go, um, you know, visit particular graves of different, you know, um, you know people we would call Sufis, right? But they would right. be in different orders, or they would be like from different parts of the world. And I know. Um, one of the things that's kind of helped me think critically about this is I, ha- I know these people that are Naqshbandis and right. one of the, you know, one of the things that they, that they're really kind of active about is that they do, I mean, they go to Cyprus every year, right? And when Sheikh right. Hassan was alive, they would go see him. Um, right. But they also, you know, spend a lot of time engaging with other teachers, right? And going, you know, and doing ziarat at other places and even places that are, you know, really far removed from kind of that that world of Turkey and Cyprus, right? Where right. they're, um, where they're, you know, teachers are. And so I think that that's helped me kind of also think about, you know, the kind of, um, idea of networks and that there's often these networks that kind of cross into each other. Right. And right. they're overlapping. And I think it's an important thing to, um, you know, to keep in mind when we're, when we're looking at these, uh, looking at these traditions. 
Right. And one of the things I found it found very fascinating while reading is that there were often sites with multiple narratives or a singular site with the same narrative, but they were in different locations, right? Um, particularly of stories of Mary um, and Adam. So Adam's Peak in Sri Lanka, for instance, and Adam being located somewhere else. Um, and I, I wondered if you can talk more about that. Like, how do, what do we do with these situations in which there are multiple sites or um, different localities of sites with similar stories? And so you're beginning to see that these spaces are being repeated in different localities, right? Um, How is that also part of perhaps a broader network or um, that we're talking about? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a couple things that are going on. I mean, I think that, that, and we have this right in Buddhism as well, where there's this kind of effort to, uh, um, you know, establish empire based on like different parts of the Buddha's body, right, or whatever. Um, And you have it in other traditions. I mean, you certainly have it with the cult of the saints and Peter Brown and his, you know, writes a lot about this. Like people would, you know, literally dig up these bodies and kiss the bones and then kind of tear them apart. And then they would, they would establish all these different sites. And so I think some of it has to do with, you know, has to do with power. Um, and then sometimes you have these political forces, right. That were, that were interested in kind of, uh, you know, establishing power based on some kind of sacred mapping, right. Mm-hmm. Um, of the land. I think you have that, but I also think there's this, this stuff that goes on about, you know, um, intimacy and wanting to be close, mm-hmm. um, right. to, to these folks. And so, um, I think that, you know, this idea that it's a combination of these things. And that's one of the things I like about Brown's work. And even though it's about Catholicism, right, and early Christianity and Christianity and antiquity, I think that his point of view about, you know, we need to look at the establishment of the cult of the saints in this complex way is really useful here, actually, because one of the things that he writes about is that um, scholars often have this very simplistic view um, and they use this two-tier model. It's like either the, you know, it's the, uh, either it's the, the, the Catholic church, right, that did it, or it's the popular people. But in reality, if you look at it, in that case, it's, you know, um, the elite and the popular people and the church all kind of working at different levels. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that goes on with these with these numerous sites and numerous kind of namings is, you know, there's a desire for people to be close um, to those that they miss and love, right? And I think with these, you know, with these religious figures in Islam, um, you have that, you know, how you have this desire, um, for people to be able to be close to them. And there's this kind of, um, comfort that they find right. And being close to them. And that's one of the reasons I think that we have these, um, that we have these different sites. And, and I think that also, you know, um, the work of Edward Soja is really useful to think about this, this kind of idea of enacting space and people, people kind of constantly creating space. And in the early part of my book, I talk about this example of um, the establishment of this, um, this, this basically the shrine surrounding Ahmed Shah Massoud, right. Who's this right. Afghan warlord slash hero, depending on, you know, who you are. Right. And, right. um, and, you know, that's something that, um, that example I, you know, gave, 
you know, purposely to kind of push this idea of like, there's constantly these new constructions of space and, and that, you know, these human communities are often kind of shaping these spaces, even if they're really old. Right. And so in Afghanistan, like you have these super, super old, you know, um, you know, old kind of pilgrimage practices, right. That have to do with, you know, centuries, you know, kind of old um, graves and such. And then you have, you have this, you know, very popular, um, you know, movement of people that go to this, you know, fairly, uh, you know, um, fairly isolated place to go be near Masood because they miss they miss something about his personality and or his leadership or whatever. And so I think that that one of the interesting things about it is is this enactment of space and how space is enacted, whether physically or even in kind of. Um, you know, in, you know, in, uh, I guess we call it the internet, right. Or, right. you know, so even the idea of like what kind of space is being enacted, um, I think is an interesting one, which is why, you know, I also looked at cyber hajas, right. Cause right. Um, there's also, you know, different ways that people can be, um, can constitute or create community. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I want to talk more about actually, you know, your discussion of cyber hajjas or just cyber pilgrimages and also virtual pilgrimages and how pilgrimages have transformed in kind of modern times, particularly in relationship with technology. Right. Um, and it was a very fascinating um, your final chapter, especially at its intersection with tourism. Right. There's like a capitalistic component of it, but there's also this other kind of media component of it and new spaces and cyberspaces that are being created. Um so I don't know if you wanted to speak more about that as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that um, people, you know, scholars that do um, kind of, um, you know, popular culture studies are, are helpful to listen to here is this idea of, you know, media that, you know, we've always had in human history, different kinds of media attached to religion. Right. And maybe in the past, like if we use the example of the cult of the saints, right. Christianity, like maybe it was, I don't know pilgrimage badges or coins or whatever. Right. And that was kind of like one of the, one of the ways that people would connect, you know, after the pilgrimage. Right. And now we have the, now we have these, you know, different kinds of ways that these, um, that these items are produced, right. To help people connect. But I think this idea of, um, that also has to do with kind of the enactment of space and how you kind of relate to space is interesting. And, um, I think that one of the, one of the, um, things that I like to kind of take away from, um, the Turner's work, you know, they're, they're really important for studying pilgrimage, but they're very focused on this idea of communitas, right? That there's kind of your regular life and then you go and you have this very religious experience. And, and I think that's a really useful, uh, thing to look at and to, you know, talk to students, right. Um, about communitas, but a, like never, not everybody has communitas. And I was always left with, in grad school, when I would read something by the Turners or somebody that would talk about communitas, I was always left with this question of, well, what happens after, you know, I mean, you invest all this time and energy and money perhaps in doing this pilgrimage journey. And, you know, is there a lasting effect or how do you kind of continue that relationship? Because people often will will kind of establish this relationship with a holy person, right? Right. Um, during the pilgrimage. And so I was really interested in kind of looking at that um, and trying to be a little critical about this 
about the Turner's model um, because I think they're really important in our field, but I also think we can go further and kind of think really critically about what happens um, when you leave the pilgrimage site, right? Or what happens if you can't go to the pilgrimage site or, you know, where does that kind of energy go, right? So in Islam, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, some Muslims that believe that, you know, when you go to particular places, you know, you may receive some kind of blessing, right? That, that Barakat is at the site or there's particular landscapes even that have this kind of religious power. So, you know, what happens to that power when you, you know, when you leave? And I think those are important questions, um, especially when we're talking about modernity, because, you know, we, we tend to kind of have this idea um, at least in, you know, Western Europe and North America, we kind of have this very fractured view of the world, right? That you have your secular space and you have your religious space. And I think there's some of that in Turner's work, kind of, you know, you are in your normal world and then you go into the, your religious world, but that's not necessarily how religious folks think about the world, right? right. Um, this kind of idea of the world is your prayer, prayer mat, you know? Right. And so, you know, I think that, you know, meditating or resting upon this notion of there's more than just the pilgrimage site that's religious and there's different ways to connect to that site is important. And I think, you know, there are particular traditions um, in Islam where, you know, people will use, for example, a portable icon um, to connect to a religious figure. I mean, I know there's people that will, um, have portraits of Muhammad or Ali or Hussein, like in their home. And that is a particular way to really have that idea of decor and remembrance in their hearts, but also to connect with them. Right. And so I think that there's a lot of traditions that, you know, I would love to see more work, really interesting work on how do people, connect remotely to these sites and these people, you know, through ritual or through even um, liturgy, you know, what kinds of prayers are said that help people kind of connect to these figures. And so I was just interested in kind of looking at from the pilgrimage point of view, but I think there's a whole kind of, um, a whole bunch of studies that could be done, done on thinking about this virtual aspect in Islam, you know, um, and thinking about it in ways that are um, really creative. And I don't think that's necessarily that, you know, I mean, I don't really buy that like technology um, and the internet, you know, changes everything. I just think it's that it's the, it's the new technology that we have. And I think that um, one of the arguments that religions of popular culture and media often make is, to remember that we've always had media, but the media changes. And I think that that's an kind of interesting way to look at things. So instead of having, you know, whatever people had, you know, three centuries ago, you know, these pilgrimage change, change because, well, maybe it's quicker. You can get to the site quicker, or maybe, you know, instead of a, um, a drawing that one might do if they're at Mecca, maybe they'll get their iPhone out and take a selfie, you know, right, so I right. think this idea of the media changing is, is a pretty interesting one. Right. Yeah. And I think the other thing that is introduced is this notion of an accessibility, right? Yeah. A quickness that perhaps did not historically exist. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean this, I didn't really get to write too much about this. Um, but I think that these issues surrounding, you know, um, bodies are really important. And so, um, these issues surrounding gender and sexuality, um, and kind of those, those, 
those um, points of access for folks, you know, um, you know, that I think that's an interesting part of the story about pilgrimage. So, you know, um, what are some alternatives to particular sites if you can't, you know, do the pilgrimage, like, let's say you are confined to a wheelchair and you can't go up this mountain or you can't do this. Like, what are your alternatives? And I think that's one, you know, important way to kind of think about pilgrimage is accessibility. And there's also pilgrimages that are, you know, somewhat restricted um, just because of social class, right? So not right. everybody can afford um, to, you know, go on Hajj, but maybe, you know, they can do some kind of substitution Hajj, right? Which we find in the Muslim world where you have people base, basically circumambulating something that kind of represents the Kaaba, right? And that's the best they can do because they can't afford to do it or they're not well enough to do it or whatever, you know? And so I think kind of looking at those, um, those alternatives is important and it kind of opens up um, hopefully people's understanding of Islam as being a little bit more complex than probably some people think. Right. Um, and I wanted to pick up this theme um, of gender and sexuality that you've also introduced as we're talking about accessibility. Was it something that you've experienced in terms of your own methodology a methodology of going into some of these spaces or participating in pilgrimages of the roles in which gender do, you know, implicate a space or allow for accessibility or deny accessibility in some ways? I know it wasn't an, a topic that was um, and. and uh, covered um, independently, but it was a topic that, you know, came out in some ways throughout the text. Um, but I was wondering, as a female researcher who's doing work on pilgrimage, is something that is very contextual, um, if you could reflect, um, if you had some thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because there's different, um, I mean, different Muslim communities have radically different ways that they articulate rules of gender, or even that they kind of negotiate their bodies in these spaces. And so, right. um I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is these sites where you have like a complete kind of freedom of movement, right? As opposed to sites where things are very kind of uh, divided up through these kind of institutions of gender segregation. So for example, you know, at um, shrines that I visited in Syria, you know, there's like a men's side and women's side, right? And you have to enter through that side. And I remember that um, this experience I had at... Um, I think it was Saida Zainab shrine where this, where this man came up and tried to kind of peer through the, peer through this gate, right. Which was right, right outside the woman's entrance. And all these women kind of ran up to him and yelled at him to back off, you know? Right. And I thought that was really interesting um, that that happened and that there was, there was kind of this, this, you know, sense of you're invading our space and this is, you know, our space and you have your own right. side and, you know, go around and enter through that side kind of thing. Right. right. Um, so I think that's, you know, something that's interesting at the same time, you know, the, probably the vast majority of these sites are pretty fluid in terms of gender. I mean, most sites that I've been to, um, ten, I, I mean, at least in my, the ones I've experienced, um, don't really have, you know, a lot of gender, um, kind of gender segregation. Um, and, you know, some of these shrines are also, and some of these sites are also, you're like quite open to queer people. Right. So right. I think it kind of, it's context dependent, right. Some, some are more so than others. Um, right. and I guess like, um, you know, I don't know, I haven't spent any time in Malaysia, but in Indonesia, it's a pretty, um, 
you know, these, these places are pretty um, fluid in terms of the men and women are completely mixed. You know, there's not like separate entrances, you know, people are just kind of all in it together. And sometimes the spaces are pretty close, like people are pretty close. And so you kind of get these different iterations, right. Of gender, which um, is interesting. And my, my, my next book that I'm proposing (laughs) to this publisher, I'm hoping to hear back from him this week is actually about um, bodies and gender in Indonesia. And I'm, I'm, because I'm really interested in this, right? Like how, you know, like how do different um, Muslim communities, um, you know, perform Islam, right? In Indonesia, sometimes people say it's kind of different, you know, than what, what we usually read about, right? So I'm kind of interested in, in looking at what that, what that actually looks like, like in women's, um, like, for example, in Indonesian, women's voices are not considered um, anything that need to really be silent. So in the village I spend time in, um, when I go, they have women that, you know, recite the prayer and lead sicker over the loudspeaker. Like there's absolutely no kind of sense that women's voices are seductive or anything like that. Right. And so I think actually, you know, more of this kind of work on, you know, that there's a lot of different ways that people perform Islam, right? And there's a lot of different ways that people interact you know, in these traditions with their bodies um, is really interesting. And I think that's one of the nice things about the material turn, right, is it kind of helps us think outside of these narrow confines of Orientalism, which are so just focused on the text, right? Right. Um, I'm a big believer in kind of trying to have a conversation with the text, but not rely wholly on it. And I think that's maybe a nice little middle path, right, for having these, um, avenues into these, these, um, these communities. Right. And in many ways, thinking of these spaces as texts unto themselves. And I think that's what your book really does is like, what do they teach us when we start reading these spaces, right. And reading these movements and mobilities around these spaces and who's engaging with them. Um, and I think that's part of the, you know, the grand decentralization that is being done in your book and really kind of tell us to think, thinking beyond as, you know, mosques as the only, you know, Islamic or legitimate spaces or pilgrimages to, to Mecca as being the, the authentic or legitimate one, right? You're really teaching or guiding us to think broadly and be very expansive in what we think Islam is and how it's performed in the day to day. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, I think one of the most interesting, um, interesting kind of studies that I read about when I was doing all this research. And I looked at, I know, I think when I finished my bib, it was something like 284 sources or something. Um, I mean, it was really, it was a lot of work and I was really glad when this book was done. But um, one of the most interesting studies I read was about these sites in Bosnia that are not, I mean, there's not even a body associated with these sites, right? Um, right. Where there would be, you know, a, sp- a magical spring or a tree or whatever. And I think that this kind of, um, you know, involvement of animism, I mean, you see it in a lot of traditions, but it's definitely, you know, there in the Bosnian case. And it's it's a pretty huge part of Indonesian Islam. Um, and I'm sure it's, I don't really, I'm not really a scholar of, you know, West Africa and Islam, but I'm sure it's probably, um, I've read a little bit about it. Right. And I think that, you know, it's interesting, right? Because in Islam, you know, not all pilgrimages are, you know, two graves. You also have these pilgrimages or these spaces where, you know, maybe there was a miracle or something important happens. Um, or it's just, you know, um, a place where, um, a Sufi teacher or a saint, you know, spent time. And I think kind of thinking about, 
those kinds of spaces is really interesting because it's there's not always architecture there that we think about. I mean, there might be a different kind of architecture, this kind of the architecture of nature, right? But it's not necessarily a building. Um, it's not necessarily a graveyard. It's not necessarily a mosque, you know, or another religious building with, um, you know, with uh, bear, with uh, bodies in it, right? Which is, I think, the way we often think about these traditions um, in Islam. And I find that like one of the things that's really interesting is to look at these different ways that these spaces um, function and how they're just really different um, from one kind of community to the other. Other, I mean, I think that's a really interesting, you know, interesting um, thing I found. And it really helped me kind of think about, you know, these writings in Islam about, you know, looking at the whole world as your prayer mat, right? And about this kind of these expansive ways that we can think about sacred space. So I think that there's a whole conversation um, you could have there, um, like if you were teaching a course in kind of, you know, Islam and secularism or Islam and modernity, like I would, I would think, oh, well, maybe my book would be a good one to, to use for that, or at least that last chapter, kind of, or even the chapter in Sufism to look at, okay, well, how are we really talking about pilgrimage in Islam? I feel like a lot of the times people talk about it as if, you know, Islam is, it's kind of like this Orientalist thing, you know? all Muslims are kind of doing the same thing. They've been, you know, right. and they only have this one pilgrimage. And I mean, that's really the goal of this book is to try to get people to think a little bit more expansively about it um, and think about it in terms of all these different kinds of spaces. You know, right. that's the main thing I want to achieve with it. And I think in that way, it's written in such an accessible way for undergraduate students to be able to engage with it mm-hmm. and to kind of showcase to them the diversity and really the messiness like on the ground, right? Yeah. Um, in the day to day. Yeah. And I think the messiness is, I mean, I think messiness is good. <laughs> right. You know, but I, yeah. I mean, I think, um, so I teach at Western Kentucky University and, and you know, something like 90% of my students or 87% or whatever it is, or, you know, students from Kentucky and I have, you know, I teach world religions and right now I'm teaching this course in Islam. And so um, today, you know, we did this, they did this uh, project where they did these portfolios um, on different things that had to do with Muslim bodies. And so one of the, one of the presentations was on the waria, they're kind of this third gender in right. Indonesia. And it was really interesting because one of the students said, you know, I signed up for this class. I never, and he was a queer student. He was like, I never in a million years even imagined there was anything like this. Right. And so I think we want that messiness and whether, you know, people approve of it or not is kind of another issue, but we want them to understand that there is this, you know, multiplicity of viewpoints and different ways that the tradition is articulated. I always try to tell students, you know, there's not really one tradition. Um, and I'm going to try to expose you to, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that may be really different from what you expect. And so I think in that respect, you know, messiness can be good, a good thing. Absolutely. And I think that's where um, I really enjoyed the book in terms of providing that landscape of the messiness of the networks of the diverse, you know, the different traditions you're saying and um, not privileging one over the other. And in fact, the everyday is far more complicated than perhaps the textual can always convey. Um, and so I we thank you for that, for providing this excellent book, not only for Islamic studies, but also for pilgrimage studies and religion. I think generally it's a, um, it's a great source for um, students and for scholars. Um, 
as we wrap up, um, you mentioned a little bit, but I might wonder if you could tell, tell us more about what you're working on next, some upcoming projects um, uh, that we could look forward to. Sure. Um, so I just I just published this book called Veiled Superheroes, um, which is about Muslim superheroines and um, graphic narratives and looks at uh, Burka Avenger and Miss Marvel and Kahara and a couple other characters. And that was a really fun project. I really love doing that because I, I, I like to do a lot of I'm, gender is one of my interests. And then I, I had this um, project that I propose um, to a press and they at least so far seem interested. So we'll see. And, um, I'm really interested at looking, um, looking at Indonesia in terms of material religion and in terms of bodies. And, um, and so I have this idea for a book, which is kind of, um, tentatively titled the mosque with the thatched roof. Um, Mm. one of the chapters is about this really old, um, old mosque in, um, in Lombok, which is off the, it's, it's kind of near Bali. It's off the coast of Bali. And they have this really old mosque. There's the oldest mosque on the Island, supposedly. And they do the call to prayer um, with a drum. It's pretty interesting. And they have this ancient drum in the mosque. And then, um, it's this very small space and the way they, they basically update it is by changing the roof. Right. So it's kind of an interesting way to, to talk about, you know, religious space and to talk about, um, you know, how people, uh, you know, maintain their traditions, but update them. Right. Um, right. Kind of thing. Um, but one of the, one of the kind of, uh, things I want to look at at that book is, um, I mean, I like this kind of idea of pushing, um, the envelope a little bit. So one of the things that I, if I get the, if I end up writing the book and get published, one of the things I would say with that book was, you know, some of, we still see some of this business of we're defining Islam in terms of, you know, these particular viewpoints and these particular traditions, and they tend to be very historically situated. Right. Right. And, um, and I think that that, I mean, I think it's, problematic for a number of reasons. And one of the kind of areas of, um, areas of difficulty there has to do with gender. So people often invoke tradition with a capital T, right. Right. To enact particular kind of heteronormative, um, patriarchal, or, you know, kind of vision of gender. And so one of the things I'd like to say with this book is if we're going to play this game of essentializing Islam or saying, you know, Islam is what happens if we look at the largest, you know, Muslim population on earth, like what happens to our vision of Islam? And I'm not making an argument that we actually, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm really against doing this, this stuff of oversimplifying and essentializing, but I think it's a kind of a fun way to say, look, if we're going to play this game, let's play it. And let's look, let's look at these communities. right? Right. Um, and um, that, you know, that's kind of what the project is and what I'm kind of envisioning this book as and what I'm pitching it as is basically an, a book that could be used for Islam 101, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a book that, you know, t- talks about you know, basically the five pillars, right, but talks about it in a way that tries to, you know, kind of create messiness. And so there's, you know, a chapter on religious space is a chapter on women's voices um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, how women's voices are often found in public. Um, There's a chapter on Islamic fashion and on what happens kind of with the trans community in Indonesia and how do we kind of think about hijab then, you know, what happens to hijab when we 
when we kind of flip the script a little bit. And so I don't know. I don't know if a publisher is going to go for it, but I'm, I'm excited yeah. about it because I think it, it'll be an interesting project. And that's the that's hopefully the next one. But it's kind of a long term thing. Like I think it's going to be a couple years. Um, right of research and and writing and all that. Um, and the only other thing that's kind of um, possibility is I, I I I have this book on, or I have this article on sexual democracy coming out, and I really am interested in that idea. So I'm kind of toying with the idea of a smaller project on that, and that's just this you know this idea of. Um, citizenship is is based on your performance of gender. And so there's certain states, you know, modern states that say, well, in order to be a real citizen, you have to perform gender the way we want it. And you know, right. Muslim women in particular are just kind of forced into this, um, you know, into this conversation constantly, especially in Europe. And so that's that's the other one that I think would be a fun pro- project, especially if you looked at kind of imagery um, and in this idea of, you know, Muslims kind of being an interruption to secular space. So that's kind of the other one that I'm toying with, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, these projects look fantastic and I, I hope to, I'm excited about reading them in the future. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for reading us- my book. I'm so thrilled you like it. It was so great to chat about it as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I look forward to future conversations with your future projects. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you. Sophia.